Please be seated. You can take your Bibles as you take your seat and turn to Romans chapter 13. As we look at the latter part of the chapter this morning, we're in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we'll look at 8 through 14 this morning. We'll see how far we get as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together as a part of our worship on this first Sunday of February. The Apostle Paul has been giving instructions to the Christians in Rome, and he moves from calling for submission to the civil authorities, which we studied in verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13, to a section on love. And he outlines this in verses 8 through 10. And then the Apostle Paul gives some instructions in light of the return of our Lord Jesus and some very popular verses, uh, verses 11 through 14. So we'll look at those two subjects this morning, the subject of love and the subject of preparation for Christ's return. But before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, Father, we wish to see Jesus in him only. We ask that you would move on our hearts now. Save those who are lost, and we pray that you would disciple those who know you. Get all the praise and glory for what you will do during this time of our service to you. We make our prayer humbly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to notice three things in verses 8 through 10. Number one, Paul says that love is a perpetual debt. Love is a perpetual debt. Secondly, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then thirdly, love does no wrong to a neighbor. First of all, love is a perpetual debt in verse 8a. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In fact, the J.B. Phillips translation says the perpetual debt of love. Now, Paul has already made it clear the importance of paying our debts. In chapter 1, verse 14, he said, believers are in debt to non-believers to share the gospel with them. We have an obligation at that point, an informational obligation, if you will, to share the good news with them. We are in debt to the Holy Spirit to live a holy life, according to Paul in chapter 8, verse 12. And as we studied last week, we are in debt to the state to pay our taxes. Now, Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Let me hasten to say he does not mean that we never borrow money. Some people have taken this verse and said that it's always wrong for Christians and for churches to have a loan, to take out a note, But nobody can buy, most people can't buy things with cash like a house or a car. And furthermore, we see in the Old Testament that God doesn't condemn borrowing. In fact, we have the year of Jubilee when all debts are forgiven. And the Bible has much to say about the lender not mistreating his fellow Israelite by uh, charging exorbitant interest fees. And so borrowing money is not ungodly. We see that activity in the Old Testament. I think the gist of what Paul is saying here is that we should be punctual in paying our bills and our taxes on time. The Christian should not fall in arrears 
when it comes to those monthly responsibilities. And we should also assess our ability and the monthly payments before we get into a mortgage or we buy a car or enter into any kind of financial agreement like that. We should be responsible citizens who show the glory of Christ even by the way that we handle our finances. Well, Paul says here, our debt, our only debt that will always be outstanding is to love one another. Why is that? Because we can never pay it in full. We are to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ in loving others. And the foundation of that love is his love for us. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son on Calvary that we might have our debt to the law forgiven, that all of our sins might be wiped away by his precious blood. And as a result of a new life in Christ, we are commanded to love others as the Lord has loved us. We can never say, I have loved you enough to any fellow believer. And Paul is saying that we must love others as Scripture commands, even though we will always fall short of the love required of us. We should love patiently. We should love intensely. We should love with our monetary gifts. We should share what we have with one another. We should listen to one another. We should respect one another. And therefore demonstrate the world what Jesus talked about when he said, they will know that you're mine by your love. So we have this perpetual debt of love. Now, notice the latter part of verse 8. Secondly, love is the fulfillment of the law. For he, verse 8b, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You know, verse 8 contains a striking contrast. If we love our neighbor, we may be said to have fulfilled the law, even though we have not fully paid our debt. In other words, we haven't loved. It's always an outstanding debt. Nevertheless, we have fulfilled the law when we practice loving. Do we have a problem here? A contradiction? No. See, we must read these verses in light of Paul's statement about having fulfilled the law against the background of chapter 7, where Paul argued that we are incapable of fulfilling the law of Moses by ourselves. Why? Because we have a fallen, sinful nature. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. We inherited that original sin from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And as a result, we are alienated from God. God has rescued us from the condemnation of the law in Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly. He's the only one who ever obeyed the law of God perfectly. And so we were saved from the condemnation of the law through the death of Jesus Christ and from the bondage of the law by the power of his indwelling spirit. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, verse 3, the law was fulfilled by Christ, quote, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, that is, fulfilled in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. You see, when a man or a woman comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they become part of the body of Christ. This is a mysterious thing. 
that we are in communion with him. That we become, as those who are called Christians, part of his visible body on earth. And that union is a marvelous and mysterious thing. And so when God looks at you, if you're in Christ Jesus, you've exercised faith, you've turned away from your sins and turned toward him in faith, when God looks at you, he sees you through the lens of his son and his perfect righteousness. And so all of Christ's righteousness is yours if you put your faith in him. And so Paul is saying here, those who love demonstrate the fulfillment of the law. Now the emphasis here is the fulfillment of the law, or not the fulfillment of the law uh, by the Holy Spirit, but, let me rephrase that, the means of fulfillment by the Holy Spirit. Paul is talking about the nature of fulfillment. The means of fulfillment is the Holy Spirit. That is, he lives inside of our hearts and he enables us to pursue obedience to the law of God. Not to justify ourselves before God, but to demonstrate that we've already been justified by the blood of Christ alone. The nature of that fulfillment is love. I mean, you can't help but love others if you have experienced the love of Christ. John says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now be careful here. Some think that law and love are incompatible. As if law was strictly a negative thing, while love is strictly a positive thing. And some see the concept of love as a license to abandon the law altogether. They insist that now nothing is prescribed except love. We call this antinomianism, nomian from the Greek word for law. Listen to the words of that scholar John A.T. Robinson who wrote Honest to God back in 1963. He says, quote, In fact, love is the end of the law because the law is no longer needed. Love has its own built-in moral compass which discerns intuitively what a genuine respect for persons will demand in each situation. There's the birth of situational ethics. But this expresses a naive confidence in love's infallibility. The truth is is that love cannot manage on its own without an objective moral standard. I can say I love my wife, but if I don't obey the law of Christ to love her, to maintain fidelity to her, to minister to her needs, to lay down my life for her. If I don't do those things, how in the world can I call that love? We're living in a culture these days that describes love that way. It's all based on the feeling of the moment and the thrill of the moment, but not an objective standard. This is why Paul wrote, love is the end of the law, or he didn't write love is the end of the law, love is the fulfillment of the law. The law doesn't go away. It's been fulfilled in Christ and therefore fulfilled by us when we are in Christ. And we demonstrate that by loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Listen to the words of John Stott. Love and law need each other. Love needs law for direction, while law needs love for inspiration. Couldn't have said it better than that. 
And we are to love our fellow believers. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Love is to be genuine to our brothers and sisters. We're also called to love non-believers. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.44, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's very important that we see that our loving is the fulfillment of God's law. We manifest the fulfillment in Christ Jesus by loving one another. A third thing, love does no wrong to a neighbor. This is the essence of verses 9 and 10. Paul now explains how neighbor love fulfills the law. He quotes the prohibitions of the second table of the law in verse 9a. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And then he adds, in the latter part of verse 9, he adds, And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. The saying of verse 9c, Love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus said before him. Why does love sum up all the commandments? Because love does no harm to a neighbor. See, the last five sins forbidden in the Ten Commandments harm people. Murder robs them of their life. Adultery of their home and honor. The sin of theft robs a person of their property. False witness robs a person of their good name. And covetousness robs society of the ideas of simplicity and contentment. All these things harm our neighbor. And that is why love fulfills the law. If we truly love our neighbors, we will seek their good, not their harm. And we will fulfill the law, even though we will never fully discharge our debt. And so after his instructions about love, Paul transitions to a general appeal to the Roman believers in connection to the return of Christ, his second coming, and how they should live their lives while waiting for him. I want you to notice three things quickly in this a beautiful latter portion of the chapter. Number one, our conviction of Christ's return. Look at verse 11. And this do, in other words, love, keep on loving. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Paul tells the Christians in Rome to wake up, in essence. Wake up from spiritual slumber. And Paul's goal is to challenge the Christians in Rome, to guard against falling into a spiritual slumber, especially concerning the Lord's return. They should be awake and alert rather than lethargic and sleepy and lazy. Some have become dull to spiritual things. You know, when we had our four children, when they were small, they would always wake up earlier than we wanted them to. <laughs> they were always up. And as they got older, I noticed a change. It was impossible to get them up. You have to drag them out of the bed sometimes. Wake up. You've got to get ready for school. Wake up. Paul is essentially saying that to these people, but he's talking about spiritual things. They should be awake and alert. Some had become very dull. You know, the Bible speaks of this profusely in 1 Peter 5.8. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. 
your adversary is on the move. And he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul said similar words in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As in Romans, Paul addresses genuine believers whose spiritual lethargy and laziness made them appear and act as if they had no spiritual life in them. The Lord Jesus said the same to the church at Sardis. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Hebrews 2 warns that the people of that day were drifting by neglecting such a great salvation. And that's why he says, know the time, not the chronological time, but the word karyos, a particular epoch or time. Paul is saying, Look around you. Look at the truth of Scripture. Look at your world. And look forward to Christ's imminent return. It's like the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. They were described as, quote, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. It's a discernment. It's a realization. Remember, the Bible acknowledges two ages, the already and the not yet. The already being the present in this sin-stained world, the not yet meaning the ushering in of Christ's kingdom. The present realm and the future realm. And the Bible also teaches us to distinguish between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. So authentic Christians, because of their conviction of the truth of sacred scripture, believe that Christ is coming again soon to take his people to be with him and to administer justice and judgment throughout the earth. The expectation of the imminent return of Christ, our Lord is uniformly taught in Scripture. Peter said, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The writer of Hebrews in 1037 said, Yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and not delay. And James, the younger half-brother of our Lord, said, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago. And some might say, well, where is Christ? In fact, Peter anticipates that objection in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says, you ought to look at the Lord and his delay as his patience for those who need salvation. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Peter also says one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. We don't have his understanding of timing. Whenever we think about the Lord's tarrying, we need to remember that he is showing his infinite patience. There's still time to embrace Christ. Still time to repent. There's still time for sanctification. I thought about that this past week. I'm grateful that the Lord tarries. I want him to come back, but it just gives me more time for my sanctification. He's preparing all of us to be with him for an eternity. And so authentic Christians should be able to look at the word of God and the conditions in our world, the whole of which undeniably points to Christ's imminent return. When you listen to the news and you look at the state of confusion of our world, the confusion that says, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I am. I'm trying to find my way. A world that gets more and more technologically advanced and yet really advances at the same pace in terms of hating people. 
and injustice and doing evil. You know, the Paul says, don't fall asleep spiritually. We fall asleep spiritually when we stop reading our Bibles, when we stop attending worship, when we don't gather together with other Christians. We become dull. You know, spiritual matters mean little to nothing to the unregenerate. But here, Paul is assuming that the Christians he's talking about are looking forward to the Lord's return. That they live their lives in light of that. That one day they will see Jesus Christ, the infinite God, man, and Savior, face to face. But if that zeal is not there, then something is wrong. Non-believers don't see Christian and spiritual realities. And one of the saddest ones is one of the categories of seed in the parable of the sower. You remember that? There were like four categories. The sower sows the seed. And one of those seeds, it says, quote, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke the word. I think that's the case in a lot of Christian lives at times. We get our attention on so many other things that we lose sight of the priority of the kingdom of God and pursuing righteousness. The Christian eyes have been opened to spiritual things. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power in the lives of those who believe. That's why Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. We need to give heed to these things. You know, all of these beg the question, am I awake or am I asleep? As a Christian. I'm not talking about non-believers here, per se, but believers. That's who Paul is addressing. Am I awake in the Christian life or am I asleep? I read just the other day about the Titanic Back in April 15th, 1912, it went down. 1,500 people died. I read an article about it, the chief reasons why the Titanic sunk. There were two or three of them, but two of them related to the leadership. Captain Edward John Smith had failed to heed the ice warnings. And the collision directly resulted from streaming into dangerous waters at too high of a speed. He was in a hurry to get to New York City to be on time, to make it right. And he didn't listen to the ice warnings because, after all, the Titanic was invincible. The Titanic was unsinkable. But what everybody thought would never happen indeed happened because Captain Edward John Smith was not paying attention, sort of asleep at the wheel, if you will. And he didn't see what was coming. And when they saw what was coming, it was too late because the ship was moving too fast. 1,500 souls went in the water and died. I pray that our lives are not that way, that we're not asleep at the wheel, that we as Christians would wake up, that we'd really ask the question, do I really believe these things? Is it really true that Christ is coming again, that he bled and died for my sins, that the whole of life is built around Christ and what he has done for me? Or is it something else? Our spiritual conviction of Christ's return. Quickly, secondly, our mortification of sin. Look at 12 and 13. 
This passage is filled with these contrasts. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. A reference to the present age which is passing away and the ushering in of the eternal kingdom of Christ. And in light of this, he says, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know, some Christians see the Christian life as life on a cruise ship. You know, you go on a cruise ship, you try to forget all your responsibilities, forget everything that you need to do or usually do, you just relax. Or like a sightseeing tour on a bus. But Paul is clear, the Christian life is a battle, a war, if you will. You are awakened to spiritual matters, awakened to your sin, and awakened to the only satisfaction for that sin in the blood of Christ. That's precisely why he says, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In another place in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Over and over again, the Bible teaches this, that as Christians, we are engaged in mortifying, putting to death our sin. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the major mark, aside from love of the Christian, is holiness. Holiness. The writer of Hebrews said, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There are many Christians, so-called, or professing Christians, are not pursuing holiness. This begs the question, does my life reflect the day or the night? Does it reflect a life that has been changed, a life that I can live in the open without a pang of conscience before a holy God, or does it represent the darkness where people hide and people commit sins alone where no one else sees? Well, quickly, the mortification of sin. Finally, most importantly, the preoccupation with Christ. Look at verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh regarding its love. Putting on Christ refers to our communion with him, our devotion and love. After all, Jesus lived and died and rose again. And what the Bible teaches is that we have that communion with him. That's the very thing this supper represents. We come to the table and we commune with our Lord spiritually. It's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now lead in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The life of a Christian is letting my life go down and letting Christ's life come up inside of me where he begins to live his life through me. It's a beautiful thing and it means having communion with him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. John 14, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The significant difference of Christianity, it's not just a belief system like all the other religions of the world. It is a relationship with the living God through his resurrected son, Christ. And the sweetest part of it is that communion with him, the peace inside of your heart, knowing that Christ lives inside of you and he is perfecting you 
for the day of eternity. I read the other day by that scholar Oscar Kuhlman. I don't believe in everything that he says. He got a lot of things wrong. But one thing he got right is his observations of John chapter 6. He says, Jesus draws a line between the feeding of the 5,000 with material bread in verses 1 through 13 to the fact that he is the bread of life come down from heaven in verses 14 through 47 to the miracle that his risen and ascended Lord Jesus, he manifests his presence among us, among his people, in the simple bread that is eaten and the wine that we drink why Jesus says my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink to emphasize the spiritual union that we have with him throughout life this begs the question am I preoccupied with Christ in the Christian life or with something or someone else and for those of us that have never negotiated the narrow gate have you ever considered have you ever considered that Christ in fact, lives inside of your heart? Have you embraced him by faith? Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior? He's coming again. He's alive and he's coming again to take all those who know him to be with himself. I pray that every one of us is in that number. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this magnificent passage. And I pray, Lord, like St. Augustine, that we would say, Lord, why not today? If there are those here that have never professed faith in Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would invade their life, invade their heart, show them their sin and their need for a Savior, and show them the sweetness, how sweet it is to taste of the goodness of the Lord in salvation. Indeed, open their heart and open their eyes and convert them to yourself today. And for the rest of us, Lord, continue to prepare us and help us to be on our toes and alert as we look forward to your return. We pray all these things now in the strong and powerful name of Christ our Savior. Amen.